On episode 33 of the pod, wait a minute. This isn't even an episode. This is just a teaser episode. And Justin, guess what? What? We're back. Here we are. I am not going to use the Lord's name in vain here because it's been just too long. This is a break to end all breaks. And we have a lot of explaining to do as we normally have. This has been the longest break of my life, personally, (laughs) of anything I've ever done. I've never taken a break this long from anything. Yes. So we're not going to sit here and tell you that we're going to be back in regular form, although that is the goal. But we are going to sit here and tell you that we're back. Yeah, here we are. We're I mean, back. Yeah, I'm sitting in my place. You're sitting in your place. I see you. There you are. Right. It's a beautiful thing. It's like old days, except we're both in different places. But everything sounds around the same. Yeah, I think it sounds good. Let us know what yeah. you think. Uh, you know, tell us, yeah. shout us out on social. <laughs> tell us if our microphones are distorting. So, Justin, lots, lots of stuff is going on in the world. So it did seem like it would be a good time to, uh, to come back, didn't it? Well, you know, Rob, when the world's in trouble, we're there to help you understand why. Yeah, exactly. So Justin and I, first of all, want to say that uh, we had promised you guys that we would come back several times now. Unfortunately, pre-pandemic life is now the norm again, where we're both working a lot, family stuff, living in different places, and, you know, time gets away from you. It's not the new normal now. It's the yeah. old normal. It's the old, the old normal is the new normal again. Because yeah. we, were in the, we were in the new normal for long enough where now the old normal feels new again. Exactly right. That makes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what we do want is to tell you guys that there's a lot going on in the world if, you're ha- if you haven't been paying attention. And it feels like we need a down-the-middle episode, if not full reboot, more than ever. Am I yeah. wrong about that? No, I completely agree. Yeah. I mean, I think it's been weighing on both of us, and it's, right. it's uh, you know, well past time. Right. So Justin approached me about doing a, a new episode, particularly about the conflict in Ukraine and everything involved. And uh, unfortunately, I am going away on vacation with my family next week. So we're planning this whole thing and it's, it just wasn't the right time. So I was like, you know what? Let's, let's do a teaser episode. I love it. Where Justin can go back and give one of his famous buzzed histories and we could, talk, we could get some facts out of the way about what's happening. And that way, when we do come back, which is going to be what? In about a week, week and a half. Yeah. When we come back, you guys will have a basis for what we're going to talk about, and we can take it from there and have a good episode. I love it. It's a two-parter. You got to yeah. listen to this episode to really get the foundation and the facts down for what we're going to talk about the next episode, but right. we're going to be able to dive right into the politics, and it doesn't yeah. have to be three hours. I was going to say, because our episodes tend to be three to four hours already, <laughs> this episode is going to be like seven hours, so we're going to ta- <laughs> we're going to take like 20 minutes of that off of it for you guys right now. So uh, I'm really just here to say hi, and because I missed everyone, and because I missed doing the podcast, I missed seeing Justin's face, and you know, missed having this microphone in front of my face. So, well, back at you. I'm yeah. glad you're here Thanks to say me. hello to the peoples. Yes, and uh, you know, we'll get this episode going, and I'm so excited to do our episode together and yes. dive into some of this stuff. Um, it's gonna be great because there's, there's some crazy things going on, not just with the conflict, obviously, but uh, what's happening in this country as a result. Jeez. Yeah, completely unbelievable, unbelievable. And so I am going to Belize, which is a tropical paradise. I'm going to an island off of Belize with my family, and I will have plenty of time to be sitting by the pool for a week and 
Thinking about the world's problems? Think about the world's problems, which is not necessarily what I want to do, but I'm going to do it because I'm going to be drinking too. So what else do you do? Yeah, we're Jews. Right. We always think about right. it. Whatever's the, whatever, wherever there's That's an ailment or a problem, we th- we're thinking yeah. about it. Exactly. So Justin, take it away. All right, here we go. As Rob mentioned, for the next little bit, you're going to listen to me talk. Obviously, this isn't the way we like to do things here, but this will lay a whole lot of foundation and context for our next episode together. And it'll allow us to get straight to the political conversation. Think of this like a primer. Some of this stuff we're going to breeze through because you've seen it over and over again on every broadcast channel in existence. But none of this will be opinion today. These are just facts, people. So let's get into it. Here's what we know. We know that this has unfortunately been a long time coming. And while there's no real way to know exactly how long Putin has been waiting to do this, or to fully understand why he chose this moment, we do know that there has been uneasiness in the region since the fall of the Soviet Union. And we most certainly know that in 2014, Putin made several military incursions into Ukrainian territory, marking the Russo-Ukrainian War, and setting these current events into motion. This 2014 war encompassed the Russian annexation of Crimea, the conflict in Donbas, that was part of setting the current conflict ablaze. There were naval incidents, cyber warfare, and ever-increasing political tensions. It's complicated, of course, as most geopolitical situations are, but it's very clear that the current conflict in Ukraine is a direct result of the 2014 stalemate between the two countries, which ended in a package of agreements called the Minsk Accords, signed by both Russia and Ukraine. However, an ongoing series of disputes prevented the agreements to be fully implemented, and by 2019, 7% of Ukraine's territory was classified by the Ukrainian government as temporarily occupied territories. Now, What is widely believed to have set Putin off is a series of events that began with a Malaysian Airlines flight shot down over Ukrainian airspace, killing all 298 passengers on board. The accident investigators concluded that the plane had been down by a Russian-built surface-to-air missile, which investigators also determined was moved into eastern Ukraine and then back into Russian territory following the accident. Cut to April 2016, where NATO announced that the alliance would deploy four battalions to eastern Europe rotating troops through Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, and Poland to deter possible future Russian aggression in the Baltics. Two U.S. Army tank brigades joined this mission, deploying to Poland in September of 2017. In 2018, after the U.S. imposed new sanctions on a number of Russian officials and companies linked to the conflict, the State Department approved the sale of anti-tank weapons to Ukraine in the very first sale of lethal weaponry since the conflict began. And in what seems to be Putin's largest complaint, in October of 2018, Ukraine joined the U.S. and seven other NATO countries in a series of large-scale air exercises in western Ukraine in response to Russia's largest military exercise since the fall of the Soviet Union. We'll get into NATO a little bit later. So who is this President Vladimir Zelensky, who has taken over the international stage with an incredible amount of bravery and courage? Born to Jewish parents, his father a professor and his mother an engineer, His grandfather served in the Red Army during World War II as he watched his father and three brothers die in the Holocaust. A former actor and comedian where he actually came to prominence playing the role of the president of Ukraine, he's only the sixth president of Ukraine, winning in the 2019 election with 73.2% of the vote in the second round, running as an anti-establishment, anti-corruption populist. He has largely tried to unite his country as Ukraine is historically divided between the Russian and Ukrainian-speaking parts of the country. He understands the power of social media and continues to harness it to the benefit of his country, especially during this time. There has been talk amongst his critics that in taking power away from the Ukrainian oligarchs, he seeks to centralize authority and strengthen his personal position 
after lifting legal immunity for members of Ukraine's parliament in his effort to tackle corruption in the country. While his time as president has not been without criticism, namely for mixing a government trip and a personal vacation, he has largely been a proponent for positive change, attempting to end the Donbas conflict, wrestling away control of the media from the oligarchs, and he has continuously offered positive reinforcement and advocacy for his presently battered country. Speaking of the state of Ukraine, we should talk about how incredible these trained and untrained citizens of Ukraine truly are. It's widely reported, so we don't have to get too much into it here, but we know that Putin did not expect much, if any, resistance. And the fact that this conflict has played out this long, and with what we're learning about the lack of preparation of Russian troops, the lack of food, water, and resources that we're seeing, it's as if Putin rushed into this conflict thinking it was going to be easy. Now that it isn't, we can almost feel him getting desperate, increasing the shelling of residential areas, increasing the use of complex weaponry, even going so far as to hint at the threat of nuclear war against the West. It's truly terrifying behavior. Speaking of the West, let's talk about what this means for us in the U.S. economically. Obviously, we're seeing some things happen as an immediate and direct result of the crisis. Gas prices are the highest in over a decade, with average prices above $4 a gallon, as high as $7 to $10 at the gas station I used to frequent in Los Angeles. Since the war began, the price of gas has risen 13%, or $0.47 cents per gallon. Last year, the U.S. imported around 245 million barrels of crude oil and petroleum from Russia, which is up about 25% from 2020, making it our third largest outside source after Canada and Mexico. In November alone, 7% of our oil came from Russia. Now, that's not to say we don't produce a lot. We're the largest producer of crude oil and natural gas in the world, but we're also its largest consumer. We produce over 18.6 million barrels a day, but we use over 20.5 million barrels a day. We'll talk more about the politics behind the much-discussed banning the import of crude oil from Russia in our next episode. In addition to rising gas prices, we're also seeing a pretty significant stock market roller coaster. Gains and losses of 1-2% to a day, sometimes more. Historically, geopolitical conflicts have had little to no long-term impact on the U.S. markets. As LPL Financial Chief Investment Strategist John Lynch puts it, as serious as this escalation is, previous experiences have indicated it may be unlikely to have a material impact on U.S. economic fundamentals or corporate profits. Then he was referring to the January 2020 airstrike that killed Iranian General Qasem Soleimani. He continued by saying, We would not be sellers of stocks into weakness related to this event, given stocks have weathered heightened geopolitical tensions in the past. For example, the Dow was up a total of 50%, more than 7% per year from the start of World War II until it ended in late 1945. During the two worst wars in modern history, the market was up a combined 115%. What we're seeing in the dips in the market could be a combination of unrelated issues, or it could be a pre-war phase of uncertainty, which historically decreases stock prices, but the unfortunate ultimate outbreak generally increases them. As per usual with stocks, there isn't a clear explanation why stocks increase this way or decrease that way. But this is what history tells us. Moving on from U.S. economics, let's talk about our role in international conflict and leave the conversation about what our role should be to the next episode. Now, just for informational purposes, let's make a quick examination of who holds war powers in our country. The United States Constitution, in its great wisdom, divides war powers between Congress and the President. Despite the President holding the position of Commander-in-Chief of the Armed Forces, only Congress can declare war and more importantly for our current conversations, appropriate military funding and foreign aid. Of course, there's nuance to this in the form of the War Powers Resolution of 1973, which states that the president has the option to act without Congress and send the armed forces into action in the case of a national emergency created by attack upon the United States, its territories or possessions, or its armed forces, 
but can only do so for up to 60 days without congressional authorization. This is why you saw the current administration ask Congress to send $10 billion to Ukraine this past week, which Congress is currently exploring. In addition to the $10 billion requested, the U.S. has currently sent the following. $1 billion in aid to the Ukraine's military over the past year, including a February 26th approval of $350 million in security assistance, which includes hundreds of Stinger anti-aircraft missile defense systems and Javelin anti-tank missiles. There's a great deal of discussion about adding ammunition and humanitarian assistance, including food, medicines, and fuel supplies to that list. We of course know that in addition to this, the U.S. has enacted extremely aggressive sanctions, but we're not going to list those here as they are of course highly publicized and we'll be discussing their effectiveness in the next episode. This conflict has brought the West together to form a united front in an almost unprecedented fashion because, well, everything seems to be unprecedented these days. In addition to U.S. and European sanctions against Russia, Putin, and some of the richest oligarchs on planet Earth, there have been a significant show of arms and monetary support. The EU is financing the purchase and delivery of arms to Ukraine, totaling 450 million euros. Germany is breaking its foreign policy, banning exports of lethal weapons to conflict zones, and delivering 1,000 anti-tank rocket launchers, 500 Stinger surface-to-air missiles, 9 howitzer cannons, 14 armored vehicles, and 10,000 tons of fuel. Sweden is also breaking a neutral stance to deliver anti-tank weapons to Kyiv. France has committed defense equipment and fuel. Belgium and the Netherlands are providing 2,000 machine guns, 3,800 tons of fuel, 3,000 rifles, and 200 anti-tank weapons. Portugal is providing bulletproof vests, helmets, night vision goggles, ammunition, and grenades. Czech is sending 30,000 pistols, 7,000 assault rifles, 3,000 machine guns, and several dozen sniper rifles, as well as 1 million rounds of ammunition. Romania is providing fuel, body armor, helmets, ammunition, and other military equipment. Also sending assorted weaponry and defensive equipment are Finland, which is not a NATO country, Denmark, Norway, Croatia, Slovenia, and Italy. Now, since we're overseas, let's talk about some international organizations, starting with the UN Security Council. The UN was founded in 1945 after the Second World War by 51 countries committed to maintaining international peace and security. Currently, the UN is made up of 193 member states and is limited in its ability to intervene on the world stage. However, it does have more than 103,000 military, police, and civilian staff serving in various peacekeeping operations and missions, so it is not entirely without teeth. But yet again, that's a subject for another episode. One more brief note on the UN, as I've been asked a few times about the rotating presidency in the past few weeks. The presidency rotates on a monthly basis among 15 member states. Norway, the UAE, the UK, the US, Albania, Brazil, China, France, Gabon, Ghana, India, and the Russian Federation. Unfortunately, it just so happened that the Russian Federation held this position when it invaded Ukraine, causing a bit of a stir when the UN held a number of emergency meetings to discuss the matter. If you haven't watched these proceedings, I highly recommend it. Moving on to an even more relevant international body, NATO, or the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, also known as the North Atlantic Alliance. This is an intergovernmental military alliance, as opposed to the UN, among 28 European countries and two North American countries. Established after World War II, this organization is tasked with the implementation of the North Atlantic Treaty, the main purpose of which was, you guessed it, to provide collective security against the Soviet Union. And a small fun fact, this was the first peacetime military alliance the U.S. entered into outside of the Western Hemisphere. NATO is truly at the heart of this war. As Putin grows more unpredictable and reckless, he has also been growing increasingly paranoid and dangerous. His main concern is having NATO in his backyard, and when it seemed that Ukraine was seeking entry into NATO 
Upon participating in the joint NATO military exercises I mentioned earlier, perhaps Putin became concerned that his ability to reunite the former Soviet Union would become impossible if Ukraine joined NATO, as NATO has a very clear principle set out in Article 5 of the alliance, which has been highly publicized. Article 5 reads that an attack against one ally is considered as an attack against all allies. This clearly means that if Ukraine joined NATO, instead of just attacking NATO, Putin would call into action the wrath of the entire body of NATO countries by trying to reunite his Soviet Union. This could be why you're seeing hesitancy on the part of NATO to rush Ukraine into membership, and as of this moment, hesitancy on Putin's part to put a toe into NATO territory. However, there's no telling if either point will hold. But this is where we will stop our conversation, as we have much to talk about on the next episode. If there's something I missed today or something you'd like to hear a deeper dive on, make sure to email us at downthemiddlepodcastusa at gmail.com, and we'll answer all your burning questions on the next episode. But now, let's get into a little buzzed history. Buzz history. Thanks, me. Hello, and welcome to Buzz History, the Soviet Union. Not without a sense of irony, the word Soviet is derived from the Russian word Sovet, which is ultimately derived from the Proto-Slavic verbal stem of vet eti, which means to inform. The Soviet Union at its height covered an area of over 8,649,500 square miles and was the world's largest country, as Russia is currently. The foundation for revolution in Russia, setting the stage for the birth of the Soviet Union, was an uprising called the Decemberist Revolt in 1825. This was after the death of Tsar Alexander I and the renunciation of his brother Constantine. The confusion that occurred during the announcement of Constantine's renunciation of the throne allowed a standoff between 3,000 rebels loyal to Constantine, known as the Decemberists and loyalists to Constantine's brother Nicholas, who had taken the throne pending formal confirmation. The rebels lost swiftly, but they forced Emperor Nicholas I to turn his attention inward to address the issues of the empire and included the Decemberists in order to do so. In 1826, Nicholas appointed a few remaining Decemberists, among others, to take part in the second section of His Imperial Majesty's own chancellery, a committee formed to codify Russian law. The result of this committee was the full collection of laws presented to Nicholas I, forming the basis for the collection of laws of the Russian Empire. Cut to 1917 and the Russian Revolution, wherein radical leftist revolutionaries, calling themselves the Bolsheviks, overthrew Russia's Tsar Nicholas II, ending centuries of Romanov rule. An intensive restructuring of the economy, industry, and politics of the country began. Led by the Bolshevik initial decrees, government documents signed by one Vladimir Lenin. Upon establishing a socialist state in the territory that once housed the Russian Empire, an extremely bloody and lengthy civil war broke out. Split into two factions, the Red Army, backed by the Bolshevik government, defeated the White Army, representing an allied force including monarchists and capitalists. The period shortly after has come to be known as the Red Terror, as Bolshevik secret police known as Cheka carried out mass executions against Bolshevik opposition, the upper classes, and supporters of the Tsarist regime. A 1922 treaty between Russia, Ukraine, Belarus, Armenia, and what is modern-day Georgia formed the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, or USSR. The Communist Party, led by the aforementioned Marxist revolutionary Vladimir Lenin, took control of the government, growing to 15 Soviet Socialist Republics. On February 1, 1924, the USSR was recognized by the United Kingdom, and later that same year, a Soviet constitution was approved. Now, upon Lenin's death, Lenin was supposed to be replaced by a troika consisting of Grigory Zinoviev, Lev Kamenev, and Joseph Stalin, but as per usual, history would have other plans. Lenin had appointed Stalin the head of the Workers' and Peasants' Inspectorate, 
which gave Stalin considerable power. By gradually increasing his influence and outmaneuvering his rivals, Joseph Stalin became the undisputed leader of the country and established a totalitarian rule, expelling both Zinoviev and Trotsky from the Central Committee and into exile. Stalin implemented a series of five-year plans to spur economic growth and transformation inside the Soviet Union, with the first focusing on rapid industrialization and collectivizing agriculture, which is communal farming, the next production of armaments, military buildup, and so on and so forth. Stalin's plan to strip landowners of their holdings and establish large state-run collective farms ran into a great deal of confusion and resistance. So much resistance, in fact, that agricultural productivity dropped and devastating food shortages ensued. During the Great Famine of 1932 and 1933, millions died. Naturally, for many years, the USSR denied the Great Famine, going so far as to keep the results of its 1937 census entirely secret. The Ukrainian famine alone claimed the lives of 3.9 million people. Stalin remained in power through significant terror tactics, including a period between 1936 and 1938 known as the Great Purge, where an estimated 600,000 Soviet citizens were executed for various crimes against the state. Millions more were deported or imprisoned in gulags. In 1941, Germany broke their pact with the Soviet Union, starting what was known in the USSR as the Great Patriotic War. The Red Army halted the German army in its tracks at the Battle of Moscow, and at the Battle of Stalingrad in 1943, dealt such a severe blow to Germany they never fully recovered. 80% of German army deaths occurred in the Eastern Front. However, the war wasn't without severe and extensive Soviet casualties, as the USSR lost around 27 million people, both military and civilians combined. Following the surrender of Nazi Germany at the end of World War II, the uneasy wartime alliance between the Soviet Union and the United States and Great Britain began to wane. During the war, the Soviet Union took advantage of the world's distraction and installed communist-leaning governments in Eastern European countries that the USSR had liberated from Nazi control during the war. Fear of communism spread grew throughout the West, and in 1949, the US, Canada, and its European allies formed NATO, or the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, as I mentioned earlier, as a political show of force against the USSR and its allies. Not to be outdone, the Soviet Union consolidated power among Eastern countries with a rival alliance called the Warsaw Pact, which marked the beginnings of the Cold War, a struggle that would persist in various forms until the fall of the Soviet Union in 1991. After Stalin's death in 1953, Nikita Khrushchev rose to power, first as a Communist Party secretary and in 1958 premier. Despite initiating a series of political reforms that made Soviet society less repressive during a period now known as de-Stalinization, where Khrushchev took steps to raise living conditions, freed political prisoners, loosened artistic censorship, and closed the gulags, he installed nuclear weapons just 90 miles from Florida's coast in Cuba, instigating the Cuban Missile Crisis. We don't have to go much further there. There are plenty of movies and documentaries to watch and articles to read on the subject. The space race was another way the Cold War reared its head, seeing the USSR launch Sputnik 1, the first ever artificial satellite, into low Earth orbit. This was a blow to the United States, further felt by Yuri Gagarin, the first human in space, launching from the Soviet Union. This pushed the US to level up its own space program, of course, famously putting a man on the moon in 1969. Following the ousting of Khrushchev, a period of collective leadership ensued, led by Leonid Brezhnev as general secretary, lasting until Brezhnev established himself as the preeminent Soviet leader in the early 1970s. The long period of Brezhnev's rule became known as the era of stagnation, a period of adverse economic, political, and social effects in the country, which began with Brezhnev and continued under his successors, Yuri Andropov and Konstantin Chernenko. 
This period also saw a detente or easing of hostilities with the West, ending in 1979 when the Soviet intervened in the ongoing civil war in neighboring Afghanistan, documented in Mike Nichols and Aaron Sorkin's Charlie Wilson's War. In the decade that followed, we would see both a crumbling of the Soviet's economic and political structures and limited attempts at reforms to reverse this. In 1985, the Soviets turned to a younger generation after enduring two transitional figures of 68 and 72 years of age. Mikhail Gorbachev immediately made significant changes to the economy and party leadership. He called his plan Perestroika, a plan for economic restructuring and a move towards a hybrid communist capitalist system, much like we see in modern China, allowing for market forces to dictate some production and development decisions. This new Soviet Union saw a massive divide between the extreme wealth of the ruling class and the extreme poverty of Soviet citizens, with frequent shortages of food and consumer goods. This created a backlash from the younger generation, refusing to adopt the Communist Party as its own. All of this combined with attacks from the US and President Ronald Reagan on the Soviet economy, isolating them from the rest of the world and driving oil prices to their lowest levels in decades. This caused the Soviet's oil and gas revenues to drop, forcing the USSR to lose its grip on Eastern Europe. With Gorbachev's policy of free public access to information, his move to end the Cold War, and abandonment of the war in Afghanistan, the Iron Curtain between the West and the Soviet-controlled regions fell. This set off a chain reaction culminating in the tearing down of the Berlin Wall and East and West Germany pursuing unification. Gorbachev's decision to allow elections with a multi-party system and create a presidency pushed the process of democratization forward, but by the end of 1989, the USSR had split at the seams. An unsuccessful coup by Communist Party hardliners in August of 1991 sealed the Soviet Union's fate by lessening Gorbachev's power and propelling democratic forces led by Boris Yeltsin to the forefront of Russian politics. On December 25th, Gorbachev resigned as leader of the USSR. The Soviet Union ceased to exist on December 31st, 1991. The breakup of post-Soviet states is incredibly complex. The Russian Federation is for most purposes the heir to the Soviet Union. It retained ownership of all former embassy properties and inherited the Soviet's UN membership. Of the two other co-founding states of the USSR, Ukraine was the only one that had passed laws, similar to Russia that is the state successor of both the Ukrainian SSR and the USSR. Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania consider themselves as revivals of the three independent countries that existed prior to their occupation and annexation by the Soviet Union in 1940, with a number of other states that claim independence from the other internationally recognized post-Soviet states, but possessing limited international recognition. The situation in post-Soviet Russia was complicated as well. On March 26, 1997, then-President Boris Yeltsin appointed a Vladimir Putin deputy chief of the presidential staff, a position he held until May 1998. He continued to hold government positions until July 25, 1998, when Yeltsin appointed Putin director of the Federal Security Service, primary intelligence and security organization of the Russian Federation, and the successor to Putin's former KGB. On August 9, 1999, Putin was appointed one of three first deputy prime ministers, and later on that same day, appointed acting prime minister of the government of the Russian Federation, with Yeltsin announcing in his remarks that he wanted to see Putin as his successor. Later on, that same day, Putin agreed to run for the presidency. However, before any elections could take place, on December 31, 1999, Boris Yeltsin unexpectedly resigned, and per the Constitution of Russia, Putin became acting president of the Russian Federation. The very first presidential decree that Putin signed that same day guaranteed that corruption charges would not be pursued against the outgoing president or his family. 
Putin was elected to a second term, winning 71% of the vote, and in a Kremlin speech from 2005, he characterized the collapse of the Soviet Union as, quote, the greatest geopolitical catastrophe of the 20th century. Putin was barred from a third consecutive term by the Constitution, and First Deputy Prime Minister Dmitry Medvedev was elected his successor. But only a day after handing the presidency to Medvedev, Putin was appointed the Prime Minister of Russia, securing his political dominance. On September 24, 2011, Medvedev announced that he would recommend the party nominate Putin as its presidential candidate, revealing that the two men had long ago cut a deal to allow Putin to run for president in 2021. Putin won the election with 63.6% of the vote, despite widespread accusations of vote rigging prompting countrywide protests. Putin infamously made several military incursions into Ukrainian territory in 2014, as we discussed earlier, and annexed Crimea and Sevastopol shortly thereafter. The 2018 Russian presidential election saw a Putin win by more than 76% of the vote. But I mean, who's counting at this point, right? This term will last him through 2024. And in May of 2018, Putin actually announced he would not run for president in 2024 in compliance with the Russian constitution. But on January 15th, 2020, after interfering in the results of Russia's nationwide regional elections the year before, the entire government of Russia resigned after remarks from Putin suggested at major constitutional amendments extending his political power long after his presidency ends. No surprise there. In September 2021, Ukraine conducted the aforementioned military exercises with NATO forces, resulting in a warning issued from the Kremlin that expanding NATO infrastructure into Ukraine would cross, quote, red lines for Putin. And that, my friends, is where we will end. Thank you for listening, and good night. This has been another incredibly long Buzzed History. Buzzed History. Well, folks, it's getting really real out there, and every day, it seems, hits us with new tragedy and further uncertainty. I'll leave you with this. We owe it to ourselves, to the freedom that our country affords us, and to the world to educate ourselves on the issues, to make sure our sources are grounded, and to examine all sides and facets of everything we choose to speak out on. So thank you for joining us this week for our rather unorthodox episode and dive into the ongoing war in Ukraine. Join us next time for a regular formatted episode, or as regular as it can be considering what's happening in the world. But I promise that Rob and I will get into all of the messy, messy politics around the conflict, both abroad and here at home. We'll see if things can truly stay down the middle. Until then, stay moderate, America. This has been another episode of Down the Middle, the fastest growing moderate political podcast in the nation. Go to downthemiddlepod.com to find out more info and contact us. If you send us questions, we'll answer them on air. Follow us on social media at Down the Middle Podcast on Instagram, at Down the Middle PC on Twitter, and at Down the Middle Pod on Facebook. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you are listening. Five stars, people. Five stars. All right. Good night for now.